Welcome to the 264th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome David Hassler to discuss the Global Vaccine Poem Project. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls Live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. A special program note, Friday's COVID Calls will be on the topic of the Asian diaspora in the COVID-19 crisis with my guests, Uje Kim and Jinri Kim. And this will be held at 5.30 p.m. Korea time on Friday. Please join me for that discussion. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, April 22nd, 2021, there are 3,061,478 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has now reached 569,404 lives lost. In Germany, 80,938 people have died from COVID-19. And distressing news from India, where the death toll has now climbed to 184,672 from COVID-19. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Gerald Lachlan by John Pinner, which appeared March 3rd, 2021 in the Los Angeles Times. Known by many as the preeminent poet of Long Beach, Gerald Lachlan was perhaps even more esteemed among those who knew him as a professor. Over half a century, Lachlan was a defining literary voice on the West Coast and beyond as a writer of poetry, fiction, and essays, tracing an evolution from hard-drinking, bear-like bacchanalian to gray, slender, sober, and ever-free-spirited elder statesman of letters. Poet Charles Bukowski's long-ago praise of him as one of the great undiscovered talents of our time has been eclipsed by the years. Lachlan published some 150 books and thousands of poems, many in translation, and studied and admired around the world. And as an erudite and gregarious Cal State Long Beach professor of literature and creative writing, Lachlan was widely beloved by students and colleagues alike. From 1965 to 2007, he taught and nurtured thousands of students, inculcating a love, appreciation, and celebration of the written and spoken word. He was crucial in helping transform a commuter state college into a destination for aspiring writers, and he propelled the careers of generations of poets, novelists, journalists, and college instructors. On January 17, 2021, Lachlan died of complications of COVID-19 at Kaiser Permanente's Irvine Medical Center one month before his 80th birthday. Taking root in the little magazines and small presses of the late 1960s and flourishing them in them through the decades, Lachlan's poetry focused on the everyday, even the banal, 
which he often rendered memorable in verse that was direct and clear, typically concise and playful, and at times very funny. Auckland was championed early on by the Wormwood Review, and he would become indelibly associated with the celebrated literary magazine by the time it ceased publication in 1999. He was himself the longtime poetry editor of the Chiron Review. His poetry collections by a multitude of publishers included the Firebird Poems, the Life Force Poems, and the early underground classic Poop and Other Poems. He enjoyed something of a mini bestseller with the 1984 novella, The Case of the Missing Blue Volkswagen, a clever, hilarious cross between detective novel spoof and metafictional reverie, which he followed with two sequels. When writing about couples, he could be brutally blunt, even severe, yet he had a streak of sweet melancholy, especially in poems about his children. In No Longer a Teenager, about his grown daughter's visit home, he writes, when she left, I said simply, I love you. And she replied quietly, I love you too. You know, it isn't always easy for a 20 year old to say that. It isn't always easy for a father. Literature and opera are full of characters who die for love. I stay alive for her. Lachlan delighted in performing for an audience, which he did regularly for decades in and around Long Beach turning the poetry reading into a festive and raucous event punctuated by his signature song and dance finale. He was the true essence of the Renaissance person, said Eileen Klink, Cal State Long Beach English Department Chair since 1996 and a faculty member for nearly 50 years. But above all, he was a person of the people. His concerns were always with the students, she said. Born, born on February 17, 1941 in Rochester, New York, Lachlan attended the College of the Holy Cross on a football scholarship before returning to his hometown, where he earned his bachelor's degree in literature from St. John Fisher College. By then, he'd had his fill of Rochester and the Eisenhower years, so he ventured west to the University of Arizona, where he earned his master's and PhD. From there, he moved to Los Angeles, where he landed his first teaching job at Cal State Los Angeles in 1964. The next year, he joined what's now Cal State University, Long Beach, where he taught for 42 years. Lachlan had long endured heart and lung ailments and developed dementia in the last couple of years. When the pandemic struck in March of last year, his family moved him to Sunrise of Huntington Beach, an assisted living center. The facility was free of coronavirus infection until December when two people tested positive. Lachlan and the other residents were tested for the virus and he was negative. Then on January 4th, he experienced severe breathing problems and his daughter Vanessa rushed him to Kaiser in Irvine. He was tested again and was positive. When the family established him at sunrise in March, as the pandemic was taking hold, it seemed the necessary move and his son Zachary, an English professor at Cal State Long Beach, said his son Zachary, an English professor at Cal State Long Beach. At that time, Lachlan was receiving round the clock in-home care and the family feared exposing him to a changing rotation of outside caregivers. It's unfortunate because one of the benefits of getting him in the assisted living facility was we figured it would be safer from COVID, Zachary said. We were thinking at that time, thank goodness, that seems to have really paid off for nine or 10 months. Two weeks after arriving at Kaiser and two weeks away from receiving his first dose of COVID-19 vaccine, Lachlan died on a Sunday morning. In addition to Zachary and Vanessa, Lachlan leaves behind his wife, Bobby, five children from two previous marriages, James, Heidi, Rebecca, Blake, and John, 13 grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren.
Okay, we're going to turn to our conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, the conversation I've been really looking forward to having. David Hassler is with me today. David directs the WIC Poetry Center at Kent State University. He's the author or editor of nine books of poetry and nonfiction, including Growing Season, The Life of a Migrant Community, Speak a Powerful Magic, 10 Years of the Traveling Stances Poetry Project, and Red Kimono, Yellow Barn, for which he was awarded Ohio Poet of the Year in 2006. His play, May 4th Voices, Kent State 1970, was produced in 2020 as a national radio play by the WKSU NPR station. David Hassler, thank you for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be here. So let me start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Sure. I'm calling in from Kent, Ohio, uh, where my, I live with my family, uh, home of Kent State University, where I work and direct the WIC Poetry Center here uh, in the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, Ohio, we, you know, are not having the surge yet that um, so many folks are hearing about in Michigan. Um, but uh, my family's well, and um, the campus has managed, I think, the, the, the COVID crisis quite well. We have sent, um, we extended, uh, began spring break late and asked, our, like many colleges, asked our students to uh, remain home um, off campus uh, after spring break, and they're finishing their last two weeks of classes online. Um, much of the classes this entire year, I, I, I think nearly 70% were remote um, because of COVID. How many students are there at Kent State, roughly speaking? Well, Kent State has the Kent campus and then uh, six regional campuses. Oh, okay. Um, so on the Kent campus, we have about 16,000 students, including graduate students. Um, okay. I'm, those numbers might not be very completely accurate, but that, that's- No, it's, it's fine just trying to get a sense of the scale of it. And, and for most of the time in the pandemic last year, were they not on, not on campus? So this is a more recent uh, thing to see them coming back? Well, um, like other universities, we-, we closed the campus uh, last spring um, and did not re did not reopen uh, and then brought them back uh, only um, in small groups this fall uh, while offering most of the classes remotely and limiting the dormitory the living spaces on the dormitory so it, it's been quite odd as you can imagine um, sure walking around the campus and, and really feeling people gone. Yeah, yeah that, that solitude has been really something. I, um, what about vaccination? Do you have sort of vaccination on demand there in Kent at this point? You're able to get it if you need it? The, um, the, the Portage County Health Department, which is our county here at Kent State, has been uh, running a mass vaccination site at our field house um, on Tuesdays opening up uh, everybody 16 years of age and older now in Ohio can can get vaccines. And our Global Vaccine Poem Project, and we can talk about that in a moment, we actually have uh, a, the, 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 the county health department provided tents 
uh, mm. both at the entrance and the exit doors of the field house where we have College of Nursing students handing out a global vaccine poem postcard, uh, which shows people how to participate and to either go online with their iPhones or to to write their response at the bottom and tear off the, mm -hmm. the bottom half and turn it in as they leave the vaccine site. That's tremendous. So we're going to, I can't wait to find out sort of every detail about this project. Let's just start to, to ground this a little bit, find out about the WIC Poetry Center. And, what does that do? How did you come to be affiliated with them? Sure. The, the, the WIC Poetry Center, um, W-I-C-K, was founded by two brothers, Bob and Walter Wick, who in 1984 um, founded the center in memory of their sons, Stanley and Tom Wick, both of whom died in car accidents seven years apart on the same day. Uh, Stanley Wick, Bob's son, died in 1983, seven years after his cousin, um, Tom. And Stanley was an avid poet and writer. And so the two brothers uh, began in the English department a Wick Poetry Scholarship, the Stan and Tom Wick Poetry Scholarship. Um, and that was in 1984. Our founding director, Maggie Anderson, who was my one of my mentors in poetry, came to Kent State in 1989 and began to turn what was then just the Stan and Tom Wick Poetry Scholarship into a robust reading series, uh, a national first book contest um, for a first, first manuscript published by the Kent State University Press and uh, an Ohio Wick chapbook contest as well. Um, she was my first poetry professor and um, I later then went on and received an MFA in poetry from Bowling Green State University and, and had the good fortune to be hired by the Ohio Arts Council in 1995 as a poet in the schools and began driving around Ohio, um, teaching poetry in K-12 classrooms, after school programs, senior centers, um, basically in, 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 in communities of all variety, urban and rural, suburban, public and private schools. And in 2000, Maggie Anderson reached out to me and asked if I could develop a, begin to develop an outreach component to the Wick Poetry Center and build in Northeast Ohio, a kind of program very similar to what I had been doing throughout Ohio uh, for the Ohio Arts Council. Um, I was hired full-time in 2004 and in 2009, Maggie retired and I took over as the director of the Poetry Center here at Kent State. Uh, the description of, of you sort of imagine you rolling around Ohio showing up at class. Um, yes. You're the guy. I mean, I was, I was one of those elementary school kids who I lived for that day. I can still <laughs> describe in detail. I remember a novelist showed up at our school one day when I was, I think, in second or third grade and I was just transfixed by the, you know, what she described in her process. And, and uh, I had a great librarian, Mona Kirby, when I was in elementary school, and she would have been like your sort of ideal person to work with to bring you into those classrooms. I mean, what a rewarding, but I'm sure physically demanding uh, sort of job that must have been. Well, I was a younger man in those <laughs> days and had the energy to get into my car before the break of dawn and drive two hours to a small town, you know, in Western Ohio and begin with a school assembly 
uh, literally for maybe grades uh, one to grades eight, you know, for example, at an at a, yeah. at a elementary and middle school and read poems and tell stories and try to, you know, captivate uh, the students before beginning a two week residency and living in a best Western hotel room or a principal's uh, spare room or a luxurious bed and breakfast, uh, the Morgan House in Yellow Springs, Ohio with with lunches provided and, and room service. So it was a fascinating um, period in my life um, in which I experimented and tried new things and off, made a lot of mistakes and learned from all that I was doing and learned mostly from the the, the, the conversations and, and the writing that came out of people from all backgrounds and all ages. And uh, I couldn't, would not replace that. The, the hardship of being an itinerant poet, um, mm. unmarried at the time, um, and no children, of course, and, and driving from, from town to town in Ohio. Even listening to you describe that also, though, brings me up short to think of everything that's been lost in in this Indeed. pandemic you know that that you could first of all just go where you where you were needed um be in a classroom um you know those things that the way you described them with great care and and great fondness but um we can't just do that now and it's it's almost hard to as you just as you were describing it i was imagining it almost as a sort of a lost time i i don't want to be too hyperbolic but we can't get to that space right now. And, and I guess that's a, a, maybe a segue point into some of the work you're doing right now. One of the ways we can start to get back to that is through the vaccination and you know, getting COVID-19 into this next phase where people are vaccinated. And so that's been um, one of the things you've taken up there with poetry. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about this global vaccine poem project. Absolutely. Um... You know, the Wick Poetry Center at, at the time that, that we began a shutdown, you know, and realized the, the severity of this pandemic, like everybody else, we, we were pivoting. You know, how do we, how do we continue to, to, to do what we do remotely, online? Um, what kind of digital expressive writing tools can we make available, um, not, you know, to the community? And, and, and how do we bring what we do with poetry for the purposes of creative healing? Um, you know, at a time when people are feeling so physically isolated, how do we use the power of poetry to emotionally connect us with one another, with one another and imaginatively feel the presence uh, of another life, of, of another... Uh, consciousness. Um, you know, Li Young Li, a Chinese American poet who is a poet I love, and we've, we've brought him to Kent State. He says simply that poetry is the inner voice of one person speaking to the inner voice of another. And, and partly what that means is, is poetry has this capacity to create a, a sense of intimacy if I'm open and, and hear a voice and hear something meaningful that me, that I meet it, I meet a poem halfway with my own life experience. And if if that speaker or if or if I if what I'm reading activates my imagination and my feelings 
it helps me begin to narrate and tell my own story. Um, and at the same time, feel that I'm in a conversation with that writer, that speaker across space and time. Um, and at the Wick Poetry Center, we, we developed a project called Traveling Stanzas. We actually started in 2009 when I took over as director and, and, and began to build out long before the pandemic, digital expressive writing tools that also had analog uh, components, versions, and very tactile touch versions, but could also engage people remotely. And one of those tools is a, we call Thread. Um, and Thread is a way that we use now with the Global Vaccine Poem Project to invite people to follow a prompt, to choose one of four prompts on the website, and then to type in their own reflection and click submit. And it, their, their short stanza uh, or re reflection goes on to an, goes to an online gallery that begins to expand and, and, and bring as more and more people participate. It's a way of building what we like to think of as community poems or you know, a collect, one you know, larger collective poem. Um, so my dear friend and, and colleague, Tyler Meyer, uh, the executive director at the University of Arizona Poetry Center, had this idea um, for the Global Vaccine Poem Project. He was in a meeting with arts agencies in Arizona not very long ago. We've, we've been very quick to, to, to launch this project, talking about how the arts can serve to help assist during this pandemic, uh, you know, our, our communities. And he came up with this idea what about a poetry? He knew about the work that we have done at WIC in building community poems and using thread. And he said in this meeting in Arizona, what if we had uh, a, a way for people to, to share their reflection through a poem online, maybe on their iPhone during that 15 minute observation period after the shot? When, we, when he observed people are sitting often just looking down at their phones or looking out. And it's a moment of intense emotion uh, and pause. It's a moment of pause when, and so he called me up the next day and it took me about a nanosecond to say, <laughs> let's do this. Uh, and we work here at the Wick Poetry Center, we work with an incredible design firm called Each and Every. They're all graduate, MFA graduate students of the Kent State Visual Communication Design Program. They're the ones that we then bring in to this idea to, to build out the design and the development of the website. And Tyler and I um, began to develop the, the language, working with a, an incredible professor here at Kent State, Stephanie Smith, in, in, our, um, in, our, in our telecommunications uh, school, uh, to assist us in, in working out the, the ideas and themes of the website and I think one of the one of the the great uh, lucky strokes of this project was an idea that that we had to invite Naomi Shihab Nye, uh, a wonderful poet, perhaps one of the most generous uh, and accomplished living American poets, and a global ambassador for poetry, uh, who lives in San Antonio, Texas, to invite Naomi Shihab Nye to write the what we call the model poem the poem that inspires uh, visitors to the website. And in its four stanzas, 
the poem that points to the four different prompts that people can, can choose. She's also appointed by the Poetry Foundation as the Young People's Poet Laureate. Uh, and so Naomi, very enthusiastically in a Zoom meeting with me, when I was first pitching this idea to her, began writing the poem while we were meeting. Wow. Uh, and, you know, started reading out lines to me. She was so excited about this idea. Mm. I think, you know, excited about how poetry can be of use, um, how poetry is in fact uh, matters uh, as a way to connect people and to help us become makers of our own meaning, uh, to make sense of trauma, to make sense of what is troubling us and, and, and has no easy uh, right or wrong answers, but to tease out a way in, in memorable language and what Robert Bly calls the leaping thought of poetry, to tease yeah. out a shape and a form that can hold um, these complex uh, feelings. And at the same time that it holds these feelings can be a, like a bridge to connect us with another life. With, with someone else and, and move in both directions to be that conversation. There's so many aspects of this I want to ask you about. I mean, first of all, this sort of concept about your, the thread project, which precedes the pandemic that you were talking about. So in that sense, sort of using poetry as a way, so an individual is expressing, but at the same time, they're meeting a collective. And there's a kind of, there's a tension in that you know, as you said earlier, poetry being a sort of inner thoughts of one person talking to the inner thoughts of another. But you've kind of taken that and said, well, let's bring a lot of these inner thoughts into one space and see if we get something that's uh, bigger, you know, the, than the sum of its parts. So that with that on the table, then also your observation, which I'd like to ask you a little bit more about, um, about poetry as a way to ease loneliness or to mm -hmm. deal with trauma as a, mm -hmm. as a mode of coping. Mm -hmm. that, has a history, I guess. I mean, I've been thinking about, you know, the poetry I even read that was assigned to me in grade school. And a lot of it was sort of war poetry or poetry dealing with loss. I mean, it, it wasn't presented to me as such, but I think a lot of it was about coping and processing trauma. Absolutely. Um, you know, when we're skating along happily um, in life, uh, why would we want to pause and, <laughs> and, and step out of the presence, the physical presence of that fullness um, and find language to, re to evoke it again? Why would we de depart from it to then bring it back through language? But I think um, that state is not a state that we live in much, you know, we, 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 don't, we don't live in that fully present uh, moment of our lives uh, very often. Um, we, we, don't, we don't sustain that. And so writing becomes, you know, uh, well, Virginia Woolf fam famously said, you know, I, I write to live twice. You know, writing becomes a way of re-inhabiting um, a troubling memory and maybe giving it a shape and form that allows us to integrate it and to move forward with our lives. I mean, you know, Naomi Shib and I said years ago when I first met her for the in a talk she gave in Ohio, she says, we write about what troubles us. Um, that's why we turn to writing, to, to, to find shape and meaning. And 
in the writing itself and the sharing of it, perhaps create a sense of belonging in a larger conversation. Um, you know, I think there's a shift going on that the pandemic that 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 started long before we have been grappling collectively and globally with this pandemic, which is a tension between the personal and the collective. Um, and this need to, I think that the, the, the porosity that, that our individual selves are a lot more porous and open and, and, and what an echo psychologist calls this, our skins are the soft zone, are a soft zone meaning there's this constant communication between the what we think of as the edges of my life, of my personality, of my self, and the world around me. And so I think the appeal of thread and this idea of adding your voice to a growing collective expression resonates with um, a growing shift of of, of an awareness of, of, of interbeing, what Thich Nhat Hanh calls simply interbeing, which is my life cannot be separated. It's false if I, if I believe that I can live separately from, from, from my neighbor, from, from, from the tree, you know, from the environment, from the unseen world which, in which this virus lives and moves easily across man-made boundaries. Uh, or or falsely perceived safe boundaries of my life and your life, my country and your country, my language and your language. So it's interesting the 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 tension that the stresses put on us collectively, and this is perhaps a profoundly shared collective global human experience, one that we've not had uh, or been aware of having. Um, in a long, you know, in my memory, and and so it's bringing to the fore this notion of our interdependence and 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 our fragility in in how our lives are dependent on others and on the environment uh, as well. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with David Hassler of the WIC Poetry Center, Kent State, about the uh, Global Vaccine Poem Project today. And, um, you know, just to that last point you were making, I, I agree with you 100%. This, um, I think we kind of lost track of it a little bit by the summer, and, and so much of the focus on one person, I, I'm afraid, um, in, in United States leadership and not enough focus on the really radical collectivity that was March and April uh, with people who could do it, um, staying home and right. staying home and being isolated in individual or in small groups. But, but in an act that I thought was really impressive and profound because it was a way of saying, I'm, I'm caring for people I will never meet. I mean, that's what that lockdown was about. 
And I think it's good to linger with that a little bit. And I think there's some interesting sort of, um, you were, it's exactly what you were just talking about, that interspace. It's sort of like opening up and saying, I'm going to care um, by doing something here, which is not fun at all and not something I've ever had to do, which is to stay home for a long period of time. And now with the vaccination, a sort of another collectivity emerges. And I think that's where the poetry project that you're uh, involved with here really speaks to that. Maybe we can talk a little bit more. Um, uh, you very kindly agreed to, when I asked you with almost no notice, to uh, read a little bit. Um, I, sure. I wonder if you could share with us um, anything you'd like to, but I think we we would like to hear the prompt um, or some of the work by Naomi Shihab Nye or anything else you'd like to share to give us a sense of how people come to first experience the project as they prepare their own minds to contribute. Absolutely, Scott. I, I'd like to I'd like to read the beautiful model poem that Na Naomi Shihab Nye wrote. And I don't know if you want to do a, a screen share on your end, but I, I can pull it up so I can read it. Um, and then I'll, I'll talk about how one engages by following one of the four prompts. This is Naomi's poem. Save us, dear vaccine. Take us seriously. We had plans. We were going places. Children in kindergarten. So many voices in chorus. Give us our world again. Tiny, gleaming vials Enter our cities and towns, shining your light. Restore us to each other. We liked our lives. Maybe we didn't thank them enough. Being able to cross streets with people we didn't know, pressing elevator buttons, smiling at strangers, standing in line to pay. We liked standing in line more than we pretended. It's a quick prick in the arm. You'll barely notice it. It's the gas in the car, Get a, getting us going again. It's the turn in the road, face-to-face -face conversation. Someday soon, it's the hug. Forever, it's the hug. Vaccine, please make the air clean. We went to yoga classes, deep collective breathing in small rooms and cities where we didn't even live. How brave we were. Vaccine, please restore our lives. Believe they were beautiful. So that, you know, hearing, hearing myself read Naomi's poem, because I've heard her read it so many times, I have to comment on the fact that, that I feel like I was reading it with much of her inflection and um i i relish that again uh with this sort of porosity of self you know literature and and certainly poetry allows us to inhabit the thought pattern and the language of another and and to try it out and to feel how it can speak for our lives too um so her beautiful poem um, then leads, when you click share your voice on the website, to the opportunity to click on one of four prompts. Very simple. One prompt is called Dear Vaccine. One is called We Liked Being Able, dot, dot, dot. The third prompt is simply It's The, 
Again, pointing to her third stanza, it's the gas in the car. And then the final prompt is vaccine, please. Um, and so the idea of the project is to say, look, you know, let, poetry is not a mysterious, um, formidable art form that requires uh, accreditation for you to participate in and participate and 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 in the joy and 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 the excitement of it. It's is it, it's using our everyday speech in a way that becomes more slowed down and intentional. Um, and so the whole idea of the of the project is to say we all can participate in the joy of making meaning out of words and being intentional about what uh, about creating a larger meaning and connecting with others. We can we we all have poetic thought and leaping thought again inside of us. And so I, I pulled together a, a what I like to call a community poem by weaving many of the responses that we've received from the gallery page and over mm. 1300 at this point, by the way, mm. um, from 56 countries and from every state in the US, including Washington, DC, with over at this point, over 8,000 visitors to the website. Um, so I would like to read a community poem that, again, is me. You'll hear all the prompts that Naomi modeled so beautifully in this community poem. Please do. And I, I, just before you read, I'm just going to make sure people know they can also find this on their own at globalvaccinepoem.com. David, go ahead. I'm really excited to hear this. Dear Vaccine, there has been so much sadness, loneliness, and death over the past year. I hope your chemistry allows every one of us to reflect on how small we are in the grand scheme of things, how we need each other to survive, to flourish together. With one shot, I walked away feeling the world might spin on its axis again. It had stopped, you know. Dad, Jim, Dick, Stefan, Peggy, Phil, Connie, Kim, all gone. You arrived in time for me, but too late for them. I marvel at what is happening deep inside our bodies, our cells being schooled by a few drops of miracle. You're the shot to end all the burning months. We never thought we'd ever see an escape from the island of our homes that became our lives. You're the short, sharp pain, a welcomed feeling after a year of dull ache. Right on the kisser, you shot into the arm on the mouth of my angel tattoo. Fear not is the angel's message. Now, dear vaccine, I can heed her good message. I didn't know how much I loved to touch the mail, library books, handrails on the city bus, to sit beside a stranger sharing our breath in that moving space. Restore us, dear vaccine, to our momentary kinships. It will be good to be back in the world again when we're ready, when we're secure in knowing that even untethered, the space between us was always its own kind of love. Please, vaccine, let us pass. We have halted on our journey 
Let us breathe easy. Unmask us. Bring us together again. You're on mute, Scott. David Hassler reading the community poem that came from the Global Vaccine Poem Project here on COVID Calls today. Thank you for reading that, David, and I, and I could see also how you're flowing through the prompts there and how each works. Let me ask you about this. As you're reading these, you said over 1,300 of these now. Um, did you learn anything about yourself or about the pandemic by reading them? Um, I learned... You know, a project like this has been such a labor of love and so rewarding. Um, it has given me, I had a real tough time in January, ups, you know, like so many of us, right? Ups and downs emotionally. And I just read a fascinating article in the New York Times on languishing, you know, the term to languish. Mm-hmm. And I, my wife was concerned, you know, in early January. She's like, David, you know, you've got to get out of the house. You've got to, you know, just dress like you're you're going to meet somebody. I mean, just <laughs> put on some real clothes, and you know, and I, you know, it was it creeped, it crept up on me, mm. um, languishing. It crept up on a last, a deep lassitude, short of depression, you know. But that languishing in between any kind of joy and and a and a severe depression, it was it was real. Profound, and I'm not alone. I am not alone. And I've had colleagues cry in a Zoom meeting with me um, over their own struggles emotionally. Um, and we're adults. I, I think the one of the biggest crises, and we might talk about this in a moment, and I can have some things to share, are the youth, and 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 certainly the middle school and high school age students, perhaps most profoundly more. More than college age students that are living on their own, perhaps more than the younger kids, I'm concerned about the mental health and, and the resilience and how we move, we help them regain a kind of balance and joy in their lives. And so this project, um, one thing, I, perhaps one thing that it's brought home to me personally is, you know, the, the, the gift is in the giver. Is you know I mean to 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 help launch this project, um, and to view and to you know we have an approval process. So when somebody submits online, it comes to me and to Tyler Meyer out in Tucson, and it's been a little hectic. You know we visit the link to view uh, the submission all at, in and out all day long, um, and we're we're only looking for uh, preventing derogatory and, and, and profane language and offensive language or uh, simple untruths. You know, vaccine, you've never been tested. Vaccine, you will kill us all. So we will not click allow to be posted uh, on, the, on the gallery page anything that is either spreading a false statement or offensive. And in truth, there have been very few submissions that we've had to flag and and not not allow to 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 go online. But I have felt um, buoyed up and energized by this project because I've this is 
been a way for me to offer what limited skills I have as a writer and a poet to be of use. Uh, Marge Piercy has a beautiful poem called To Be of Use. And this, mm. this notion that, that our expressive voice, the expressive voice of poetry is a nourishment and a necessity uh, at times in our lives as real as any uh, physical medicine. I like to think of poems as language in tincture form. Um, and uh, so, so this has been a, a great joy and, and, and I feel a great honor and privilege to be, to be a part of, of this larger team, Stephanie Smith, my, the entire WIC Poetry Center staff, uh, and Tyler Meyer and, and many of his colleagues at the University of Arizona Poetry Center. Uh, thanks for sharing that sort of personal set of insights about languishing. And I think you're right. You're definitely not alone to have had that, that feeling. And it's hit people at different, at different times. One of, one of the interesting things, just to reflect for a second about the, the structure of this project, one of the ways people can interact with it is to take that 15-minute observation period after vaccination and channel it into this creative mode. People I've talked to on COVID calls um, who've been volu volunteering at vaccination centers have pointed out um, the euphoria that they see, uh, that people coming through. Um, uh, Deborah Carr, I talked to earlier this week, who works on aging populations and um, talked about her experience um, in those settings where when they go to elder care facilities and people don't want to go back to their rooms. So it's a, it's a moment of community, but again, it's a socially distanced moment of community. And so again, offering that something to fill that 15 minutes, I think it's going to be a really emotionally charged 15 minutes for a lot of people. I haven't experienced it yet. And so it's a heightened sense at perfect to try to capture something creative, I would think. Absolutely. And, you know, the word stanza uh, comes th that, that we use in English to mean the section of a poem originally comes from Italian and means a small room, often a waiting room uh, in a train station. And so, you know, poetry itself is, a, is we, and the traveling stanzas project that we developed, you know, at, at Wick Poetry Center we like to say that it offers people a moment of pause or a pocket of time to slow down and reflect on their life. Um, and so that moment of pause that's already built into the vaccination process, um, why, not, why, not, why not infuse that with the opportunity to, to, to reflect through poetry? I think what we're also finding is many people are maybe too, too, too in the moment of, of being nervous and waiting to see what signs they have. Right. And they're not using that 15 minute pause to, 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 to put into language their feelings, but in fact, later. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, folks, you know, poetry is the kind of thing as William Stafford says that you have to see out of the corner of your eye and it will disappear under disfavor. So this idea of creating favor for that moment to say, I'm going to allow myself to be vulnerable and I'm going to dip, dip down into my own memory and feelings and allow a voice to come out to, to, to give shape to it. What is the favor of that moment? And, and maybe it's late at night. Maybe it's, 
two weeks later, maybe it's, you know, finally I've had, I might have an afternoon where I, I can go to the website and tell my story. Um, you know, I like to talk about this, this difference between healing and cure, curing, you know, to, to cure is to eradicate a virus, for example. So, so the vaccine might be a, a kind of cure, but to heal from old English is more nuanced. It, it means literally to make whole. Mm -hmm. uh, it means to integrate. And so, you know, people that are, that survive cancer and, and brutal chemotherapy treatments might be cured of the, of the cancer virus, but not healed. They feel so broken, their lives upended and up and, and upturned. And so I think that the global vaccine palm project is a, is truly a creative form of healing in the sense that it helps people pause and make meaning of what they've gone through in this pandemic. And I like to think of this as a, as a healing that complements the cure of the vaccine. Mm. Um, and it will, the thing about healing is that <laughs> it continues long after the cure, the need to heal. And that's what I, when I think about our youth and, and, and so many of our students in middle and high schools, middle schools and high schools needing um, to, to uh, help in, in finding ways to, to heal, uh, which means to, to make sense and meaning and to integrate uh, what they've been through in their isolation. Well, let's talk about that a little, a little bit. I mean, even people who, who say, oh, you know, I don't like poetry or they don't think that poetry is part of their lives, but of course then they've got uh, uh, scores of, of lyrics, you know, song lyrics memorized and then realize that that's, that's poetry um, or, you know, the presentation that Amanda Gorman gave, the poet Amanda Gorman gave at the Biden inauguration, which was tremendous, not only in the words, but also the presentation and just the coolness of it, just her ability to take what we'd all been through and, and, and not only the virus, but the racial justice struggles and Black Lives Matter and turn that into something so crisp and inviting and challenging. I feel like poetry is having a moment and, and it, and particularly with, and it, as it should, with younger people who need to, I think, fall in love with it at a certain age or feel it as a, as a vital tool in their life that's there when they need it. I know you share that view because you told us earlier about some of your earlier, you know, work um, sharing poetry with young people. But I guess it's not a work that that really stops. There's always new generations coming up that need that introduction. So with that, tell us a little bit about how the global vaccine poem project is is intervening with that population that sort of middle middle school age or adolescent age group sure um well i i recently went to visit my daughter's uh ninth grade uh ninth and tenth grade english class brave uh, man brave man yeah with my mask on and you know they've been hybrid uh for much of this year two days in person um and three days remote. Now they, after, you know, several weeks ago, they came back after spring break four days a week in person. Um, and it was, it was revelatory for me to be, to stand in her classroom. And I, I have great respect for her English teacher, uh, Jeff Har, who invited me to come. Um, and to talk about the, the global, to talk about the pandemic, to talk about the Global Vaccine Poem Project, and in real time to invite them after charging the air 
with the model poem and, and some conversation discussions, inviting them to, to write quietly, 10, 12 minutes. And um, some typed right into their laptops and write it onto the website. And I approved. Uh, and it went up onto a screen on the, in the classroom. And then they read and shared and talked with each other. I, I'd like to, to read two of them. Um, and I think, you know, what it showed to me, uh, which I knew, but maybe, maybe made it more real, being in there in their classroom with their masks on, and of course, sit, seat, seated dis, with, in, with distance, there was a great sadness uh, in the air, um, and still fear, and confusion, um, and uncertainty. And, you know, we have many friends whose teenagers are, are, are struggling in a very, very real way emotionally. Um, and there's something about a mask. I mean, I, I, I spent so many years, as you were saying, Scott, walking as a potent schools, you know, into classrooms, getting a hug from a third grader, a second grader, you know, expressively talking in a crowded room with others and reading the inflection and the turns of their, the corners of their mouths and the full face. Right. Mm. And we don't have that you know, out of safety, we, 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 we have just the eyes peering above that, above these masks and the eyes of these kids looked concerned and troubled and not, they look different. And so the writing too, I'll, I'll read two of these pieces, um, gave voice to, to, to the emotional, uh, I think some of the, the, the pressures that they're feeling and, 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 but, but poetry became a way for them to put language to what they were feeling, pushing them from behind. And it became a way of putting it in front of them in language on the page or on the computer screen. And then, you know, as Robert Bly says, a poem is not completed until it's heard. So they, they heard each other's voices. And I don't know, it's a long road for healing. But but maybe there was a moment of of a moment of pause and uh, of some nourishment of some of some restorative time during this poetry writing with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't I don't I'm not naive to think that there's any magical cure or easy way uh, into into a, a more healthy future right now for our kids. But why not try? And, and this is what we do with, with writing all the time. So here's two pieces. Okay. Dear Vaccine. Oh, and I, what I love this one woman, she borrowed, because I told them, you know, we don't steal in, in literature. We borrow what we love. It, you know, if I hear it, uh, Scott, you read it to me. Uh, you know, weeks later, I could say it. And, and if I love it enough, it's mine too. I mean, nobody owns that language uh, in, a sen- in a sense. And so she borrows one of the one of the images in the community poem that I read to them mm-hmm. from, that I read just now to you. Dear Vaccine, restore us to each other. Let the earth spin on its axis once again. Rescue us from this sea in which we are drowning, drowning in loss of loved ones, relationships, and hope. Bring my head out from under the water. Let us breathe again 
as you let us gasp for air and catch our breath. Guide us to land, dear vaccine. So that's one. Hmm. And she just quietly builds on this controlling metaphor of, of drowning and not, mm-hmm. not being able to breathe. And this idea of navigating our way in our lives out of the condition that we're in, guide us to land, dear vaccine. And I think she surprised herself. And there were clicks from her classmates. I mean, she was, uh, I didn't, I don't, I, I know this, this young woman, but I've, I've never been in a classroom with her. Um, but I think that she felt heard. She felt heard and acknowledged for, for, her, for that feeling and maybe a little less alone. Here's another one. Mm. We liked being able, we liked, I'm sorry, it's using the prompt, we liked being able. We liked neighborhood picnics in our backyards, cars lined up down the street, pesto hot on everyone's plates, kids running around to find flags until one two-week shutdown became a two-month and then half a year and then now to where we are. Gone are those smiles and happy faces replaced by the blank looks caught in time by the blaze of a screen. Only until people trust in you, dear vaccine, can the world begin to become alive again. David Hassler reading poetry on COVID calls. And these are poems, both of those written by ninth and 10th grade students participating in the Global Vaccine Poem Project. Uh, Again, using the prompts that you described earlier to tremendous effect. I mean, I can't wait to go in and, and, and read. I don't know how many of those are already up on the site for people to see, but. Um, many, many. There's a, a school in Tucson, Arizona called the Gregory School that recently introduced this project to mm-hmm. a group of, of their students. And these were poems I'm reading from Kent Roosevelt High School. One of our aspirations, Scott, is to grow this project to create an educational component all next year, fall Mm. and spring. Lesson Mm. plans for teachers, pop-up exhibits that schools can request, and a way to connect kids through the interactive part of this website digitally with other kids Mm -hmm. um, for to point toward this effort at creative healing and also understanding. Uh, We we created a project with, with poet Jane Hirschfield who approached us um, several years ago for a Poets for Science uh, project that she dreamed up. And we uh, at WIC, working with a design firm, each and every um, designed 22 seven-foot pull-up banners of poems about science that Jane Hirschfield curated. And we took it to the National Mall in 2017 for the original March for Science with Jane. Mm. And uh, that exhibit's traveled around the country. And continues to be very popular uh, in a way that connecting the the creative expression of poetry with the sort of creative um, thinking and and discovery of science. And that 
you know, Jane has a beautiful quote, which I love to, to repeat. Poetry and science are not opposites, but allies. And the microscope and the metaphor are both instruments of discovery. And so I think, you know, to take the Global Vaccine Palm Project and mingle in a little bit of poetry and science to complement what we're doing with this creative healing and to build it out for teachers and, and students, uh, both nationally and internationally, is a very exciting prospect uh, for next year. I think the stakes of that are, are pretty high, and I, I, I think you'll succeed with that rollout, and I hope teachers will reach out to you uh, about this. One of the things that you know, we hear a lot about in the media right now, and I guess in our own communities, is, is this term vaccine hesitancy. And I think a lot of times, and I've learned a lot about that talking with guests here on COVID calls, people who really study um, why and under what conditions and how people overcome hesitancy, it's not a yes or no. It's not a one or a zero. For most people, it's a process. And I'm afraid also a lot of times there's a sense in which if a person is hesitant for any kind of medical treatment, um, that they're sort of anti-science or it's, we sort of put them in a box rather than giving them probably what they need, which is more information, a space to talk um, and time to process um, what is a personal decision. And I, I wonder if you've seen that reflected in any of the poems or, or how you think about that, that issue, because this project, I mean, vaccination in the United States and around the world is also about science and it's about politics. It's about, there's so many things wrapped up in it. It's not just walking in a room and getting a shot. And, and so I, I, guess I, I guess my question here is really how can a project like this one help people overcome hesitancy or provide a space where people can reflect on their own processing uh, about what it means to be vaccinated? Sure. Well, I think, you know, I think the room of a poem is large and can, can, can contain complex feelings and contradictory feelings as well. Um, and I think, uh, so I think poetry is uniquely suited to, to, to not strive for the quick answer, but to hover around an intense and complex feelings that have no, that have no easy yes or no, right or wrong, but um, sort of give us a, 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 a space to dwell in and to reflect in a, in a conversation with ourselves and with each other and with the world. Um, Rumi, the 14th century Persian poet Rumi has a beautiful quote. He says, out beyond the field of right and wrong, I will meet you there. Um, and I, so I think, you know, poems are that field beyond a simple right or a wrong. Um, and perhaps, the conversation that can happen through this process of reading the gallery page and hearing other people's authentic and inner voices um, humanizes the vaccine experience in the way that you began the show, Scott, by telling the story. Um, you know, stories are, in fact, magic seeds um, that can be planted in the mind and heart of another. Um, more powerful than, a, than the large abstract number is the is is the one number is the number one the singular human life authentic story 
And so perhaps the voices of these poems, if in any small way, can help engage people in the process for them to, to do it themselves and, to, and to, 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 to enter into this conversation that we are helping to prompt on this website. Um, we have a, a, an exciting uh, NPR audio project with our station WKSU on the Kent campus. They've been airing audio uh, recordings of two community members every Friday during National Poetry Month, introducing and reading their global vaccine poem. And tomorrow on Friday will be, um, and there's, a, there's an archive on their website, wksu.org global vaccine poem. There's a audio tomorrow by a woman I know who's who's has a powerful poem about her hesitancy. Um, in this case, uh, she has been living with leukemia for 12 years. And so her hesitancy comes out of understanding how being immune compromised, um, she doesn't know what kind of um, side effects she might receive with the right. vaccine. And it's a gamble. But it's a beautiful poem called Here's My Arm uh, that will be aired tomorrow on WKCU and then live on the website, uh, on, their, on their Global Vaccine Poem website on WKCU. Well, we're almost up on time. In fact, we're over time. As I figured, I would want to keep you longer uh, to hear about this project and the many different uh, you know, ways that it's, it has the capacity to seep into different uh, into different conversations around America and around the world and, and to impact different people. Um, really impressed with it. Can't wait to share it with people. Uh, one more question is sort of a historian question here um, is, you know, how, how will this project live on? Yeah. Well, because, because it's not only you're, you're intervening in a moment, but you're also making a record, David. And I'm sure you're aware of that. And and I, as a historian who works on disasters, I think a lot about this pandemic right now, but I also think about what it's going to be like 10 years from now when people are still processing this moment or facing some disaster that's going to happen in the future and look back to this moment to find creativity, hope, coping. I mean, people are going to be watching us in the future. They're going to be watching how we're coping right now. And so I wonder how this project will live forward going forward. Well, I, I'm not a, 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 a historian, and yet um, oral histories have always um, uh, intrigued me, and, and I've, I've, I've gravitated toward drawing on oral histories to create works of art. And as you mentioned in the introduction, I I worked with the archives here at Kent State. We are we we carry the legacy of the shooting, of killing of four students, nine wounded on May fourth, nineteen seventy. There's a remarkable oral history archive on our campus that called the May fourth, uh, May the May May fourth um, shootings, May fourth oral histories, and I spent um, half a year working with reading through the twelve hundred pages of transcripts, the hundred and forty. Um, fully transcribed interviews and, and w scripted a play called May 4th Voices. And so I'm very much aware, and, and it became a way of bringing that back to the community and bringing back to life these incredible testimonies and stories from all different perspectives. I think what we're building here is a living, growing archive that um, will 
will grow and and have long-term importance. Um, you know, David Brooks in an op-ed piece in the New York Times talked about the Spanish flu and the silencing, which is one of the hallmarks of trauma, is to silence ourselves and our families and and certainly what happened in, for many years here at, at Kent State. What what this project is doing is 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 encouraging us not to revert to the silencing of this collective trauma, but to 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 inspire our voices and to hear from each other. And I would love to see it archived, perhaps at the Smithsonian. I would love to see audio collected, um, it, you know, on a global level. Uh, and I, what we do hope is that artists and, and poet laureates and communities and cities and, and, and community artists might draw from the gallery of responses within that drawing from voices in their own community on the website and create public works of art and installations with visuals that become markers and, and a way to honor and mark what we've all been through together collectively. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just a special program note and a reminder that Friday's COVID Calls will be on the topic of the Asian diaspora in the COVID crisis, and I'll be talking with Uje Kim and Jinri Kim at 5.30 p.m. Korea time on Friday. So please do join me for that. And just want to thank my guest, David Hassler, who's been talking with us about the Global Vaccine poem project today. Um, couldn't be more impressed with it, David. Great luck with it. And uh, I can't wait to participate myself. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me on. And I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Stay healthy, everyone. We will see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm-hmm.